This is Ethan, and I'm here with Dave, and together we are Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast, episode 59-inch. On this week's episode, we interview Tad Dowd, someone super influential on Al's career and record contract, as he was the head of the rock and roll division of Scotty Brothers Records. It's Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al it's a podcast about Weird Al. Seriously, the whole podcast is about Weird Al. You don't have to listen, but we're glad you are. How was your weekend, Ethan? My weekend was brought to you in part by vegan Mexican restaurant Burrito Burrito in Troy, New York, home of the two-pound double wrapped in a quesadilla burrito burrito. Come on down to Burrito Burrito and Burrito Burrito your Burrito Burrito. Find them at burritosquared.com and at burritosquared on Instagram. And remember, not every burrito is a burrito burrito burrito, but every burrito 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 can be burrito burritoed. I saw the pictures. What was the story behind those pictures? (laughs) Oh, man, Dave, it was amazing. So I went to Burrito Burrito, and I gave them a heads up that I was coming because, of course, you can't go into the restaurant. So I gave them a heads up, and when I pulled up outside, the owner, Alex, surprised me (laughs) with the biggest burrito ever made. Wait, the largest burrito ever made in the world? Well, no, the largest burrito ever made by burrito burrito oh okay (laughs) still that's pretty impressive it was insane it was literally the size of my arm uh (laughs) (laughs) i was so blown away because in the ad it says two pound and this was a four pound burrito they weighed it with the vegan twinkie which they still sell by the way and he said it's a big seller And it weighed it over four pounds. Oh, my God. Wow. (laughs) It was so big. I put it on the passenger seat and I'm driving home and I'm on the highway. And all of a sudden I hear this beeping and it's the passenger seatbelt alarm going off because it weighed so much. My car thought someone was sitting there not wearing a (laughs) seatbelt. Oh, my God. That's insane. <laughs> it was just, it was unbelievable. So, Please tell me you put the seatbelt on for the burrito. <laughs> of course. I couldn't have that dinging going off the whole time. <laughs> Good. I'm glad your burrito was protected. <laughs> so I loved it. It was amazing. You already know how much I love burrito burrito, but this was insane. And people have asked me, no, I did not eat it all in one sitting. But it gave me an idea because I was watching Man vs. Food, that show on Food Network. Oh, yeah. I love that show. Yeah. (laughs) I was thinking they should do a food eating contest with the four-pound burrito. (laughs) That's a great idea. (laughs) So I told Alex, and he loves the idea. So if they do it, I am totally going to partake. Would you do that, Dave? I would attempt to eat four pounds of burrito burrito. I don't know if I could, but I would attempt it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, from experience, I don't know that I necessarily could, but if I was going into it knowing I could train for it, and I I think I could like not eat for three whole days and nights, and then I would be fine. (laughs) All right. I'll help you train for that if they do set up that challenge. Awesome. (laughs) So, Dave, how was your weekend? Honestly, it wasn't all that good. Really? What happened? Well, you know, on the Strings Attached tour, how they were selling that really awesome coffee mug with the Strings Attached logo on it. I remember when you got home after buying that, you told me it was your favorite mug of all time. It was. I drink my tea every single morning out of this mug. Oh, well, that's not so bad. 
Yeah, but what happened is I was cleaning it out the other day, and I accidentally put a little chip in the rim of the mug. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. What kind of chip you got in there? A Dorito? <laughs> no, <laughs> a little piece of porcelain from the mug oh. chipped off, and now I have this right around the rim. Fortunately, it's on the side that I do not drink from, but it has a little chip in it, and now I'm really sad. Oh, no, Dave. You're going to have to be really careful. What if you pick it up with the wrong hand? You could cut your lip. I know. Good thing I'm right-handed and not left-handed. Yeah. I'd be uh, in trouble. <laughs> well, if I ever come to your house and you make me tea i have to be super careful because i am left-handed and i do not want to cut my lip well fortunately the good news is i can still drink out of the cup the bad news is it is slightly damaged and i'm very sad about it and now ethan i know that you often kid me about why do you always buy two of everything and this is the exact reason why I buy two of everything, because I do not want the only copy of what I have to accidentally be ruined like I did. So I do have one still in mint condition, never had any liquid in it at all. It's in my display case. So I do have one in pristine condition. So no worries there. But I am sad that my everyday mug is damaged. I might have to actually go out and get an official Gill and Chill mug now to replace it. <laughs> That's a great idea. Okay, so you bought two, but there was a purpose for each of them. One is for your display case, one is for you to actually use and enjoy. Now that one's damaged, do you think you would get a third strings attached to her mug? Excellent question. I had thought about it. I'm going to have to go and see if there's a way that I can find a replacement mug for my backup mug. <laughs> now, if you did, Dave, get a third one, would you get rid of or throw out this chipped one or would you still keep it? Well, it's still usable, so I would definitely keep it, but I wouldn't bring it out when company came over. <laughs> I'm just wondering, is there any way that you would throw out a Weird Al collectible, even if it was damaged? Maybe if it shattered into like a million pieces and I couldn't put it back together, maybe. I don't know. Oh, you mean just a hard puzzle? <laughs> I just put in a plastic bag and, and wrote, <laughs> formerly known as Al Strings Attached Mug on it. Yeah, did you keep the piece that chipped off? No, I don't know what happened to the piece that ah! chipped off. So <laughs> it probably went down the drain. Yeah, so I guess that little piece of my collection, that tiny little chip that out of the, the rim of the <laughs> mug is now, you know, somewhere in the uh, sore system. Dave, because you are known as a Weird Al fan, you know, worldwide, you're known as the super fan do you think that there is any collectible value added to the cup because you are the one who chipped it <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if anyone wants to buy a chipped weird al strings attached mug please make me an offer <laughs> i'll let you know if anyone bites on that offer ethan <laughs> uh, you know what dave none of this would have happened if you had just listened to me and got that darn mug insured by Don Ferlazzo. This week's episode brought to you in part by the Don Ferlazzo Allstate Agency in Clifton Park, New York. If you drive like crazy or about to buy you a condo or if you're cleaning your tea mug, Don Ferlazzo and his team can help you with crazy good auto, home, and renter's insurance. Plus, the Ferlazzo Agency can protect all of your collectibles that you fill with liquid. You may think your insurance is good enough for now, but don't wait one more minute find the Ferlazzo Allstate on Facebook Twitter or Instagram or call 518-278-3543 for a free quote today the Ferlazzo agency we sell insurance and that's all I really wish I had gotten that mug insured because I would really like a replacement for my backup right now. That would be really great. <laughs> so on Tuesday morning, I got this alert on my phone that Al is going to be part of this benefit concert. It's called Music Cares Soundtrack of Our Lives Benefit. 
It's a benefit event for the Music Cares COVID-19 Relief Fund. And not only is Al going to be there, but Sting will be there, Catherine O'Hara, William Shatner, and just dozens of other celebrities. Do we know what Al's going to do yet? What we do know is that Al will be part of a musical number also featuring Zachary Levi, Patti Lapone, Alex Newell, Peter Gallagher, and Harvey Firestein. The one-hour-long pre-recorded special premieres at noon Pacific time, which is 3 p.m. Eastern time for me and you, Ethan, on Thursday, June 25th on YouTube. For more information and to donate, you can go over to SoundtrackLives.com. That sounds great. I can't wait to check it out. Do you think that this is the event that Suzanne posted on her Instagram a couple weeks ago? Yeah, that's a great thought. You know, they probably recorded the musical number remotely because they couldn't really get together. So that would explain the camera crew. And I think that's a great idea, Dave. Thank you. I had it all by myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I look forward to checking that out. That sounds like fun. And it's pretty cool that it's actually going to be out there on YouTube so anyone can check it out. Yeah, absolutely. I'm definitely looking forward to checking that out. I definitely want to see Al's involvement in this. And I want to see if I'm right about my prediction that this was what Suzanne took the picture of. For the past six weeks or so, every single night, Weird Al's keyboardist. And the new guy in the band. Yes, the new guy in the band. He's only been there about 30 years, Dave. Ruben Valtierra has been doing nightly concerts and they are awesome. So he usually performs for about an hour and a half to two hours And it's right in his studio. You can see three different camera angles. It's really cool. You can see Ruben playing from one angle. You can see an overview angle. And you can actually see his fingers on the keys. And then there's another alternate angle. And usually between songs, he'll kind of chat with the people. And you can write him messages and stuff. And be careful what you write because he will get mad sometimes. If you talk about Weird Al, he gets mad. If you talk about cats, he gets mad. If you <laughs> you have to be really on your best behavior. He gets mad. Everyone in there gets mad at you. But it is really, really awesome. And I've been checking it out the last few nights. And it is just a great way to get ready for bed. Because he really is a very fantastically talented keyboard king. Oh, that sounds really cool. How can I check that out? So all you have to do is go to facebook.com slash ruben.valtiera, and it's every night, 1130 Eastern, 830 Pacific, and you don't need to be friends with Ruben to watch the live stream. And in fact, even if you ask, Ruben probably won't accept your friend request, (laughs) but you can go in there, you can chat, be polite, and enjoy it. It is so much fun. I think all of our listeners will get a kick out of it. Yeah, for sure. I'm definitely going to have to check that out. Thanks for bringing that to our attention, Ethan. And I'm really excited for this week's guest. Let's go to the interview. Our next guest was the president of Rock and Roll Records and is a big cheerleader and longtime supporter of Al's. And we can thank him for signing Al to Scotty Brothers Records. We're very excited to introduce to the show Tad Dowd. Hi, Tad. Hey, Tad. Glad to have someone else from Jersey on the show. Where exactly in Jersey are you from? I'm from Rumson, New Jersey. That's the family from Livingston. Yep. Time goes on. Weird Al hits. Get a call from my godson, Mama Beach, 12 years old. Can I go to the show at Red Bank? Sure, Timmy. Timmy McGuire. Now it's 15 years later. He's at the racetrack in Del Mar with his wife. And Tom Bernard, who's from Rumson, New Jersey, the president of Sony Classic. So his son is Eddie Bernard. He's about 29 or 30 now. He's 27. He's talking to Tim McGuire. He said, I'm the biggest Weird Al fan. They start matching lyrics. He was at the same show 
All right? He didn't know me, couldn't get backstage. He said, I was backstage. I got pictures. <laughs> How's that for a coincidence, huh? Wow. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. Uh, yeah, it really, it really is. And uh, I give Jersey all the credit because uh, when we first signed him, Scotty Brothers were from New Jersey. I make up this anecdote because it didn't happen, but it's a good story. Al says, how come you guys sign me? How many companies turned you down? 35. I said, well, we're from New Jersey. We get it. He loved that line. <laughs> and uh, that's that's what I'm sticking to. The other funny story is he got me speaking at one of these music conferences Christmas time. How did you get Weird Al? So I thought I'd give him a fantasy story. So Tony Scotty, the boss, the partner, he and his brother Ben grew up in Long Branch, went to high school. Tony says Benedict's a everybody cast, and Ben says Benedict's right. Football player, legendary guy. Tony had to play accordion because he's the second son. The first son plays piano. So I tell the people, I wanted to make a big hit at Christmas time with my boss. So I said, I got to sign an accordion player. So I saw an accordion player named Al. I signed him. I got a nice plane ticket home. The audience <laughs> loved it. <laughs> I said, I'll make a hit with my boss. I'll find an accordion player. Uh, yeah. But it, 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 the truth is, we used to listen to him randomly on Demento. And independently, I loved another one rides the bus. As did Tony Scotty. And Tony always says, he said, I never thought it'd be what it was, and I only did it because of Ted. <laughs> he was taking vocal lessons in New York, and he'd get the bus at the Port Authority to stay with his grandmother. I'm working for $50 a week for the ad agency after college, and I would take the bus at the Port Authority. And the bus got so crowded. So we did the opposite. We moved to the back of the bus so you could look at everybody. <laughs> I thought that's what I was talking about. Another one, another one. I thought he'd been to Port Authority. Another one, another one, right? It turned right. out, he said, I'm just talking about Linwood. <laughs> <laughs> but that sparked an interest. And then the real backstory is this. So I was friends with a guy named Jake Hooker. And Jake was married to Lorna Luft. Liza Minnelli's sister. I knew the father-in-law, Sid left because he was a racetrack guy and a great guy. He was married to Judy Garland, et cetera, et cetera. And Lorna was his, uh, his, his daughter with uh, uh, Judy. So Jake and I would exchange, exchange. But what happened is he gets a call because he wrote the song, I Love Rock and Roll for Joni Jett. And he gets a call from uh, Al and Jay Levy. And he said, yeah, you know what? I'll get permission, but the character kind of likes this guy. You mind if he specs an album? I said, thrilled. So 10000 Well, Jake took it to all the other companies. So I said, Jake, how many companies? He said, about 30. I said, why are you coming to me now? I said, you should have come to me first. And that's when everything started. And uh, what people don't know is I was the only one in the company that was lobbying and Tony Scott and I would ride in the car, and he said, man, this is great, but what are we going to do? I said, well, you always said one of a kind, that he is, and he can duplicate it. So he's not a novelty, so I know. And so the next thing is Fred Scotty Jr., who was 19 at the time, he's raving about the guy. He's all the relatives. Leonard Brazier is their in-house lawyer, who's a CIA guy, Red Bank Cafe. He's raving about that. Everybody in the country, forget it, right? So this is going on. Couple months, I'm fired up. Well, Tony Scotty is married to Sylvie Vartan. She's the biggest French star in the world. Her ex-husband is Johnny Holiday, Elvis Presley. 
Well, David is 15. He's like our son. He starts screaming, I love Rocky Road. <laughs> because he heard it on some morning program. Tony Scotty calls me on a Sunday. He said, Tiny this guy, forget what anybody else in the company says. He said, if a French kid is screaming and gets it, there's something going on with this guy. <laughs> and wow. after about three weeks, now we get a deal. And Al's happy, Jay's happy. But we say, listen, we think you have to freshen up. Because it's a year old, I love Rocky Road, maybe a little dated, right? We're looking for wonders of promotion and marketing. So he comes back and writes, Ricky, Ricky. Now, nobody in the company gets it, but three or four people. <laughs> and he says, can I get 4000 I got a woman director over at Fox. This is sure. I got no budget. Rock and roll records. Tony started the company. He said, Tan, it's your company. You're in charge. I said, what's my budget? He said, nothing. She said, I'll make it work. <laughs> Jersey, right? I'll make it work. Right. So I've got my own record label, Rock and Roll Records. And so, uh, from there, we made it work. So, we get the video. Next thing is, it's a phenomenon called MTV The Box, right? Right. They need videos. But the box was really the greatest thing. Not MTV, if you do all the research, because they had an expanded list. They didn't mind if you jacked it, you know, to get some kind of stimuli and everything else. Well, here's the best part of this story. I go to my promotion, guys. I'm all fired up. Here's the quote. It's a real piece of SH, right? Can't get this plate. It's a Friday. It's a fellow. I don't blame you. You've worked hard. The home for the day. I treat him to lunch. I haven't called a radio station in 10, 12 years. I get on the phone. I just pick up. And do me a favor. Play it once. If it doesn't react, throw it away. Because I knew it was an is or isn't. Uh -huh. After 10 calls, little follow-up, lower the phone to wait. Thank I go home for the weekend. I don't tell anybody. Tuesday, which was ad day for R&R, &R, that was the Bible then, we had more ads than our biggest record of all time, Eye of the Tiger, for Rocky Three. I took a bow. I said, fellas, hard work. So every year, Tony Scotty would have these meetings internally to discuss the future for the next year and plan different things. I'm actually saying the record that all the guys put their hands up. Well, we got Weird Al coming. He said, shut up. Weird Al only blows to me and Tad. Don't ever mention him again. Don't take any credit. <laughs> so, and that, that was the beginning. And every record label, we were distributed first by Atlantic, then CBS, right? It was right. shocked with Ricky Ricky. And by the way, we sold like 80,000 albums, and we were thrilled. Well, that sold over a million. Two things happened that we didn't know. One, these core lawyers would say 11, 12, 13. They discovered Weird Al. They didn't like what their parents were doing, and they didn't like their older brothers and sisters. He became their guy. But what happened was, over the period of time, people would go back and get the catalog. We never thought we'd sell a catalog with Weird Al. So the 12, 13-year-old guy becomes glue. He's their Beatles. He's their Rolling Stone. And all of a sudden, as time goes on, they want everything associated with Weird Al. We're selling catalogs. Every record company, CBS, Atlantic, RCA, they didn't know what they were doing. We didn't need any help, right? And they would always say, well, that's it. He's a one-trick pony. I said, are you guys crazy? He'll be around 40, 50 years. One, he's a one-of-a-kind guy. Two, he can duplicate. And three, there'll always be a phenomenon, won't there? I don't know what Al's doing right now, because I don't get the uh, internet until somebody tells me. I didn't know about the R. Kelly thing, which was brilliant, right? You look at that video. And that's one of the greatest in history at the drive-in. The guy's beefer with his wife over a hamburger. Right? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was phenomenal. So with all that said and done, there's always going to be a phenomenon in the record business. 
and Weird Al won't veil it. And every technology adapted to. He was the first guy to download eight figures in eight days, not Beyonce's. He's the only artist to debut number one in the history of comedy or comedy music. Because he can't. now he only, you know, downloads what he wants and how he wants. But I promise you, I haven't spoken to him about this. He's got to be looking at 21 Nas X or whatever the guy's name is. He may not do it, right? So what my point is, there's always a phenomenon, isn't there, in a record business? Yes. Yeah, you mentioned that a lot of people thought that your Al was a novelty act or a one-hit wonder. Right. Can you tell us what you saw personally in Al that said otherwise? Well, first of all, if you listen to the first album, The Dementor, the Rick Derringer, right? You saw everything was great. So he was one of a kind, not a novelty, and he could duplicate. So that already said there's something there. And our biggest regret was we were never, ever able to break an original. Tried everything. The radio station. And if you look at Al's originals, the audience knows a lot of like Biggest Ball and Pride at Minnesota. To me, one more minute of your time. That Elvis Presley thing, right? Yes. I wanted to do a Valentine satire of saying the greatest breakup songs of all time, but then we saw the company Valentine's Day, right? Kiss and say goodbye to Manhattan and do a whole breakup with a package of candy. That's how Valentine's Day, right? This is the weird Al's got, right? Rather than, have you ever heard it to spend one more minute than the first album? I would rather, I would rather clean the toilet of Grand Central Station with my tongue (laughs) and spend one more minute with you. This is brilliant. (laughs) But we could never, ever, all right, even when we had something out of the park, there was resistance, not from his audience. For instance, he does Jurassic Park, right? Well, that's out of the formula because it wasn't current. MacArthur Park was 10, 12 years old. But it's the biggest movie of all time, right? Spielberg gives permission, and he's animated in there, if you look. Yep. Rarity. Spielberg's a fan. Okay? <laughs> we took that to our friend up in Hartford. He banged it. No response. The formula was broken and the fans didn't react. MTV, which is, oh, Al's the greatest, right? They were never allowed to discuss. They had some calling on the video. He had the biggest in history, including Michael Jackson. Please keep it down to him. We've got Michael. Okay, who cares, right? Mm-hmm. However, they only played once Jurassic Park. But the box played it for a year. We sold a million dollars. And that was out of pocket because it wasn't current. There was a definite formula. Current, current, current. Then he started with the hip-hop, which became great for him. Even the stuff that were blowaways like Hammer, You Can't Touch This, about a kid watching television. The mistake that was made, because Tony Scott is building the company internationally at Baywatch and, and recruiting money and territories, our record company is still stuck in the past. And I kept saying this, do a video on everything. It'll be worth a lot of money one day. Wouldn't it have been great to have a video La La Lasagna? <laughs> totally. <laughs> right? Because years later, I was right. You know, we did a whole video collection bang. And so to me, that was a sensible, but, you know, corporate script. And, and so I'm, at least I'm very proud of my tell Al. I said, I more credit for you than all the other personalities I was involved with was a PR guy. It's just unbelievable. I was involved with Namath, Muhammad Ali, goes on and on and on. You mention Weird Al, people freeze. Puts you in a different dimension. <laughs> totally. And I especially can't believe a Jersey guy, me and Al, how could these guys even know one another? I feel very good about that. 
I, I said one day, I said, Al, these women are bothering me. What's the matter, Jan and Ben? I said, you put me in the pantheon of Goliath. He liked that phrase. <laughs> but, but the truth is, Al is one of those guys you'd hang around with if he weren't successful or anything. Because he's just a genuine, nice person that likes people. He's very, very inquisitive, very, very polite, very smart, and very disciplined. And I've never seen a, a, an artist, you know, do so well with people of fans and fans. The closest would be completely opposite was way back Tom Jones. Now, Ted, there's these famous stories about, you know, in particular, girls just want to have lunch. You know, the company forcing Al to do these certain songs. Can you tell us anything about that? Well, no, it wasn't forcing. One of the problem is executives have plans at certain times. With Al, you can't schedule it. And then all of a sudden, you dry up, say, and there's no hits coming, and there's no survivor, and there's no this, right? So Tony is out of the country. So the regular corporate executives have got a product, have product. He said, hold on. This is not a normal creative artist where he delivers every two years and works on an album. It's what inspires him at the particular time. Well, it goes on and on. So they would make suggestions, right? And of course, that was the one. And I used to tell everybody, do not make any suggestions. He's much more to you. So I don't know if Forrest would just say, come on, come on, come on. And I didn't even realize that one. So I have to check it. But somehow he came up with it and everybody was happy. What did you hear? I've heard this story is that, you know, he was asked to do it. And it wasn't necessarily right. something he wanted to do. Could have been. <laughs> I thought it was his idea. It might not have been at that particular time. I, I really don't. I thought it was maybe the hammer one. You can't watch this, right? But yeah, Jay would call me and I would say, listen, I know you guys are under pressure of product, but he can't solve all your problems. He's an innovative creative. This is not where you hit a button. All right? And I used to tell the guy, do not suggest anything down in the hallway. And then at that time, everybody tried. Every radio station... Everybody in the country tries. Nobody had hit parties, did they? Because it seems easy, and it wasn't. And the other thing about Al, he was number one in his math class at San Luis Obispo. So I said to Jay, he combines mathematical disciplines with creative sensibilities. That's a rarity. Nobody did that in comedy, right? Right. And he'll walk in with a thousand-pound dictionary. So he's a very unique, one-of-a-kind person. So... It probably was, and we didn't pay that much attention with the corporate pressure. But I think of a nice anecdote. So we're getting ready for our first big contract resigning, right? And we're all up in Tony Scotty's office. And it's a nice lunch, and everybody likes one. And that's the easy thing. Al was easy. Jay Levy, I said, Jay, any beast, just call me first. I go right through the system, and, you know, whatever, right? One time I found out he's not getting a response. He's waiting for a check. He tells me, I said, you'll have it tomorrow. I said, Tony. He goes, and Tony says, wait a minute, get the check. This is the only guy earning money. What are you waiting on for? You know, company struggle. And, and, uh, but this is how nice they are. So I have a tremendous interest in horse racing. And I brought a young guy out called Kent Swamble 30 years ago. He set the world's record 599 wins. I stuck him in Baywatch because I was a jockey's agent in Monmouth Park. And I wanted to help racing a little bit with promotional marketing. Well, he's got a tremendous derby prospect, which I got him. And it happens to be running on a Wednesday in Keeneland. I said, Alan, Jay, do you mind if we stop the discussion? We'll order lunch and I can put this on the watch list. They said, no, that's great. They all stopped. 
Oh, he said, Mr. Greatest, they all watched the race. The horse won Pleasant Cap, and then we went back to lunch. Now, that's a darn. That's a bench, isn't it? <laughs> that's a great story. <laughs> At another record label, they would have fired me. Right. <laughs> uh, now, you, you couldn't be two nicer people, and they had all kinds of leverage, but they always were nice. And I said, Jay, just call me and let me sift through it. And there was no better manager than Jay Levy because he communicated with his artists and he communicated with the company. And I used to tell people, don't bother Al with your ideas. Say thanks, all right, when you're on the plane with him. I said, because remember, he's an artist. He's going to be nice to you, but then he's going to tell his manager the truth. I said, so just be low-key. I went to high school, Tony, played football with him. And so in New York, I'm working at the NHC meeting with him, and we kept talking, music, promotion, marketing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And after he started out of the dolls, which he hated being an actor, his brother quits pro football, and overnight he takes Autumn Records. So Brummel's Mojo Men, because he could not be denied as a promotion marketing guy, because his focus and his nonstop jersey drive was uh, unbeatable. So when Tony was uh, got out of the movie, he didn't like it. He became a record producer, and he's at MGM Records. And Ben was the head of promotion, broke the Osmonds wide open, and Lou Raw. No matter what it was, he's going to break it, and it better have something. And Mike Kerb had his plans. And then they asked me to join him as uh, promotion marketing. So Mike's one of those guys turning every actor in the world one day to maybe vote for him to run for president or vice president or governor. So he takes me to dinner with Merv Griffin. And I became the head of the Merv Griffin label. <laughs> which was just a lot of talk about nothing, but it was a lot of fun because Merv was a good guy and a racetrack guy. <laughs> and, and and that was basically it. And then they threw us out of MGM because there's a takeover. So Tony says, look, I'll be the brain and we'll start a company for $1,000 a piece. I went back to uh, Florida, New York, handling some promotion and marketing with Naaman. And then in 78, they said, Dad, we're going to start a label. Come on out and things are good and we're going to take this company all the way. And that's that's what happened. You know, from marketing to that, that we had the first TV show. Uh, nobody gave us anything. We would have got ice from Jersey, they used to say. So, and anyway, that was what we went through. But Tony had a tremendous drive in mind, and there was no stopping Ben. And the record label became a small part. We did America's Top Ten Videos, Casey Kasem, all right? That was the first syndicated music show. There was no MTV. The first act, we had to take out of jail and then the money to do the video, to have a video. That was the whispers. Only the urban acts saw the value of videos. I go on and on and on, every story. Then we did the AVA, the American Video Awards. Rod Stewart was the first recipient. Everything, you know, was crazy. Oh, and when Paramount turned them down, a year later, they paid $250,000 for a Jersey Girl, Dionne Warwick, solid gold. <laughs> we failed at the movie business. He regrouped, all right? When Big and TV syndication bought a bankrupt TV show called Baywatch. How's that? Oh, nice. They sold the company for a lot of money, and Tony divvied up a lot of money. The record company was only about worth $17 million. The company was sold for $545 million. Eat It, of course, won the Grammy for Best Comedy Recording. Is that like Rock and Roll Records' first yeah. Grammy? Oh, yeah, because basically, look, I had small unknown acts that would get play and whatnot, never kind of broke white out with Pat Robertson's a lot of talented people, but Al was, you know, in a dimension. And here's a, a, another nice story and the kindness of Al. So Jay Levy called. He said, look, Ted, we're going to pass on the soundtrack 
they may claim in that revenge of the nerds. I says, why? We'll do it, whatever you want, Jay. I don't know anything about this fiction. He said, Al's got a huge chance, Johnny, dangerously. Well, it makes all the sense in the world. It's a huge picture of Michael Keaton, right? They gave him $300,000 for a video. And everything is spectacular. The problem was, which nobody knew, the audience, you see Johnny Dangerously, it's a classic. The audience at Christmas time didn't buy a satire parody about the James Cagney gangster movies of the 40s. So in the meantime, I said, Jay, because I'm desperate, do you mind if I call and uh, look at the script? And he said, no. So I called them. Well, they're thrilled. They send it over. I read the script. I said, wait a minute, this is great. And nobody's making a comedy. So I figured, okay, I go over there and I said, I want two videos. They thought I'm crazy. The movie said is thrilled because they got 120,000 meant nothing till they get promotion, right? Uh, of, a, of a small film. I sold close to, never broke a record, we sold close to a million dollars in Revenge of the Nerds. Because hmm. we put in a lot of oldies and everything else. I couldn't break the one girl's group sensation. But that was all through the Weird Al. So that's another bonus, right? Revenge of the Nerds. And there's another movie, of course, that Al wrote with Jay Levy and starred in, UHF. Oh, well, that was the greatest. <laughs> yes. That was the greatest. And, you know, the scores were so high, and it didn't do any initial business. I think the movie company thought it was just such a blowout uh, before Rotten Tomatoes. The scores were so high. He didn't quite have a grasp on it. And you know the rest. It was so far ahead of its time. because it exactly what happened in the world of cable. And two, everybody in that film was a brilliant actor and star. It was an outrageous film, became a smash hit on cable. But we had no soundtrack or anything to do with that. You know, it's like a picture that we had. We only had one station where it went top 10, couldn't spread the record. Ben Scotty was so frustrated. A year later, it goes on cable. I got calls from two ex-NFL ball players that never called me for anything. Hey, can I have the soundtrack for Eddie Cruises? I'm out here in Canada watching the film. I said, sure. <laughs> Next thing is, every day we're getting requests. Next thing is, we sell four million albums. Wow. And, and unfortunately, Cafferty was brilliant, but he resented subconsciously and consciously that Michael Perret was in the movie, right? Playing him. Instead of throwing that, who cares? And he could have had a big age and a big this and big that. And forget what a fan I am. Independently, you listen to John Caffey and David Brown. He tears these guys up. If you went into a room, I love to argue, and put Caffey, Southside Johnny, and Springsteen, unknown, unannounced, and raw, Springsteen comes in a poor third. <laughs> and I know Mike Capel. I know the whole history. I know Jersey, and of course, I'm satiric. I'm a rock and roll guy from James Brown, Jackie Wilson. I'm allowed to be opinionated. Mike Appel signed him as a songwriter. John Hammond signed three acts. Billy Holiday, Bob Dylan, and Bruce Springsteen. He signed Bruce Springsteen as a folk singer, right? When I saw Springsteen, I should be with your Jersey guy. I'm the only guy that saw him at the Troubadour because see Mark Colbert lived across the street. He played piano the whole show. The highlight was Clarence Hammond. I said, wait a minute, this guy, I'm hearing all his hype. He's a bad Carl Sandberg. Interesting lyrics, but they're a little bit, you know, remote. Because <laughs> I'm a half literate, right? And years later, and everybody walked out on the show, they don't talk about that. You know, Greg, uh, Martin, all the fans, and all the dilettantes, and all the geniuses, right? She says, no, Jerry Lee Lewis. So I said, wait a minute. See Mark the next day? He says, I said, what happened? 
says, Chad, that audience is all CBS records. They were forced. They walked out on their own act. Every time you look, the closest is Bruce said, well, uh, I was new in my career, and uh, my guitar string broke. Do me a favor. Chuck Berry's guitar string broke. He's not playing piano. I'm a guitar man. So I was always a little, 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 little. The guy's a brilliant songwriter. He can't sing, and he's got no rhythm. He's a credit to what makes America great. He's an overachiever. <laughs> and I've always said, if you're mediocre and you're an overachiever, you can be very successful in America. So that's just me. <laughs> and forget Kathy, whether we had her or not. Take Boardwalk Angel, please, right? Take Voice of America, son, because I can read poetry a little bit. But anyway, I, I guess briefly all the credit of the world because he came along at the right time. The only act doing anything was Dylan. 20 minutes was your headline act. So you're in the middle of this tremendous vacuum, and he filled it for all these 35, 25-year-old stone kids who were deciding what to do with their lives, and so they saw this and got excited. <laughs> they never saw Joe Tex. If they did, they would think twice. <laughs> they never saw Jerry Lee Lewis, did they? My understanding is you went to one of the Weird Al shows on this past tour, Strings Attached. Tell us what your experience was. Oh, I loved it. So I went to the San Diego Civic Center, right? And when it was first announced, I said, Jay, this is a, a, a reach, but uh, you know much more than me. I said, but who's going to come? What's he going to do? Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Before we get to that, it was the year, two years before when he had the, uh, just the original, right? With the four pieces. Yep. Well, Jay was right. He said, we're going to play small places, 1,800 seats. And right away, my guy, Eddie Bernard, was in New York and said, it's brilliant. And I saw it twice at the AC. Brilliant. Now we go to the strings. That I knew was going to be huge because when you're booking the Greek theater and all these 7,500 and 5,000, you, you know they know what they're doing. Yeah. So I went to San Diego because I didn't want to go to L.A. because I want to stay at Del Mar for the races of the beach. And it gives me an extra day. So I go Sunday night. And I run into a Vicky and I run into all these people. But it was spectacular because I don't recognize the music, but the fans tell me, you know, it's from all these different movies, right? 45-piece, sensational. He takes a break. That's one of the greatest shows he's ever done. Because <laughs> he's always got, right? And now, I'm a fan first. Forget all the other accolades. I'm a fan. I get it. I'm proud to know this guy. Yeah. And I think he's brilliant. He makes me laugh. And, you know, I think part of it is we're from Jersey. I go back, and I went to Red Bank Catholic. That was a radical experiment, a Colin Catholic high school. When I went to an all-boys Jesuit school, those guys were like in the fourth grade next to us. They didn't even know how to say hello to a girl, okay? <laughs> so this is a great good thing. We were greased on steroids at Red Bank Castle. And so to me, Weird Al, and the show was so great. And I had a good night that night. And what'd you guys think of it? Incredible. I, I mean, it, it's almost hard to describe how great those shows were with the full orchestra. And by the way, he had, he had even more energy than ever, right? Yeah. Yes. And he was even happier than ever, if that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> You know, yes, and he didn't go in his show. I don't know whether it's a parody or an original, but it was almost like a James Brown thing, like three quarters of the show. This guy's an incredible performer. And today when you see Weird Al a person, his body looks like an ex-NFL ball player that kept in shape. He doesn't look like Weird Al from 35 years ago, you know, because he's got, well, the veg, you know, the shoulders, the arm, you know, and he's strong. And he, looks, he doesn't look like a 56-year-old guy, does he? <laughs> No. And his performances, he works like a dog. You know, and I said to Jay, you know, it's a shame you have so many moronic people that run the industry that are brilliant. They should be throwing deals at him. 
All you can do is fail at a cheap price. I said, Jay, all the success. They, see, the executives don't talk to audiences of people. Are you going to do any more films? He said, Jay, you'll only do a film if they give a green light from the get-go. Well, that's tough for these companies unless it's Spielberg or somebody, right? And meanwhile, a smart studio say, go ahead, Al, you got something for $12 million, 15 Roll it. Tell us when we put it out. <laughs> now, you hinted so, a little bit about the uh, Vanity Tour, the All Originals Tour. What did you think of that tour? Yeah, I loved it. It was brilliant. It was everything Eddie Bernard told me. I, I, it mesmerized me. It worked, which shows you how dominant this guy is, isn't it? Yeah, it was finally a chance for him to show off his originals. Yeah, I mean, uh, no, I thought it was sensational. And then even when he did the parody stuff. Now, it's just a shame. That's my one uh, frustration. We were never able, and that's because I call it the bias of the industry because they want hit-driven radio shows. If they had taken one week, 20 stations, and played one of the originals, I believe it would have broken wide open. And I love to tell the story. He's got an original. It was so brilliant. It was the greatest peace song of all time. And it was called Christmas at Ground Zero. You almost get a cheer, right? Yeah. So the one station we got Denver to play it, and the general manager says, take that off. That's a pro-war song. He, they didn't get it. It was the greatest beat song. <laughs> right. Can you imagine this? I went berserk, and they had to calm me down. To me, you look at those lyrics and that thing, Christmas at Ground Zero. He's talking, why can't there be love and world peace? They didn't get it, and it's a shame, <laughs> because it wasn't a stretch. When it came to producing singles and that sort of thing, were you involved in the decisions on that? No. Left it all up to him. But basically, uh, with the singles, it had to be album-driven. See, we always knew you make no money with a hit comedy single. Weird Al fulfilled it, so there was no point in singles, right? It was albums. And then when it came to the single-driven, I said, look, let him do what he wants. I think he felt a little push too on Hammer, uh, which never released, which, uh, you know, you can't watch this, or you can't touch this, which I said, that's a natural for a video. Imagine a kid watching TV 24 hours a day. But anyway. <laughs> and then they put out James Brown, which I think Jay said that was a force, but it turned out to be a hit record. You know, one as big as his others, but still living with a hernia, you know, is still very, very, very prominent. Were there any acts that Al wanted to parody and just could not get in touch with the original artist, and you had to step in and, and hook them. Yeah, and well, I, you know, I, I have heard Prince was definitely one, right? Right. And see, we didn't know in the early days, he uh, indemnified us, right? And then Luke Campbell wins that case, so I'm thrilled because now we don't need anybody. So that we wound up identifying him, but Al had a peculiar quirk. Even though he could parody anybody, didn't need their permission, he wanted their permission. And I don't know whether it was an accolade or subconscious or respect or whatnot. Me being in a record business and always have a need and a greed, right? <laughs> I wanted to roll. <laughs> However, it's all Billy Joel to me. I think somehow, and I don't know the story, and maybe one day you get it. Something bothered Al about that. And you know when he used to do his live shows, he was vicious, right? It's all Billy Joel to me. He really put him down, didn't he? Right. <laughs> it was unlike Weird Al. So there's some kind of... Prince, he gave a pass to him. He got lucky with Nirvana. Jay Lee, he got him backstage at Saturday Night Live. Bang. Good mood. Madonna's the one that called Weird Al. How brilliant is she? <laughs> Supposedly, she even came up with the title. Yeah. <laughs> because right. she knew 
a made person and you sell a lot of things, it gives you right eye. Madonna's a great promotion executive. And so, you know, you got to get the uh, lucky. And of course, record companies, all they want are sales. Get some more, get some more. Here's a good idea. Alpha's off there. Please tell them to leave me alone. I just go eat. Go have some veggies. Let me have all the heat. <laughs> and, uh, but no, B- Billy Joel. And uh, so that's why he does it in the live show. Then the beef with Coolio, it goes way back. First of all, Coolio's manager is a huge fan. I went over there a month before we all started. And then Coolio says, care less, not interested. Okay. So we're stuck. In the meantime, Fred Scotty Jr. goes to the uh, power programming. And Coolio's girlfriend's the music director. And Fred says, hey, hey, Fred, how are you? He's very prominent, young Fred Scotty. He discovered Kilo and, uh, and uh, Gee Whiz, I want to be your teddy bear. So he was very strong with the power people. He says, Coolio, come on. We're down. Oh, by the way, one of the writers was from Newark. He couldn't wait. Because they're all going to get about 25000 if Weird Al does this unit number. That's a big passive check, isn't it? Yeah. It turns out it was Stevie Wonder that had really the rights because it goes back to Coolio. Well, Coolio says, I'm down with it. In other words, yeah, fine. Then he denies it. Now he says, Ken, what did you guys do? Put me in a trap. I said, oh, Jay, I would never lie. I would never trick you just to do it. Okay. So now Coolio's heating up his beef. So, Jay, so we got the guy from Newark. All right, nice young guy who's a songwriter and wrote that song. And he's one of four guys that were shared around. He goes with Jay Levy and Weird Al to the Dick Clark show. And then Jay Levy's close to Dick Clark. Guess who the co-presenters were initially? Alan Coolio. <laughs> yes. And then Al puts out a statement. Because Coolio's ranting and raving, trying to make it like a gangster feud, right? Al says, well, I guess I'll have to get my posse after his posse. <laughs> wow, the joke was so big, it was embarrassing to Coolio. <laughs> And we all got lucky, and that's the story. And it was a classic of classics, and it shows you how great the Amish are. Any other group of people would have been suing. <laughs> <laughs> even, even the Celtic Patties would be suing from 1890. <laughs> Am I right? That's right. <laughs> I mean, that, when you look at it, they took the Amish from A, B, C, D, every stereotype. They all smiled and went along with it, didn't they? <laughs> Yes, and, and, and to me, you know, each time Al would have a a, a monster breakout, eat it, fat, Nirvana. I don't think anything tops that. Gangster paradise, Amish paradise, and he revived the whole culture. America didn't even know who the Amish were, right? No, I mean, right. I think he brought light to the Amish. <laughs> They're kind of trying to hide. <laughs> I should I should give him credit. I would because you go on TV. Oh, because of that, Amish now can get divorced, and I saw a couple of selling gas. You won't believe what you've done. He's often credited with reviving Jeopardy with his song, I Lost on Jeopardy. Oh, Michael King called us to meet Weird Al because he realized the value of Jeopardy for promotion for his show. How's that one? And we yeah. grew up with, you know, the King, King was from Jersey, from Asbury. Michael and, and so we all knew them back as kids, and then Fort Lauderdale, and, you know, there's nobody like Roger King in the history of the business. Mm-hmm. And uh, the racetrack guy said, "Can you know Roger?" I said, "Yeah." So we hope he drink. He doesn't drink. I said, "Why?" He said, "When he drinks, he does cocaine. He's impossible. Just cocaine. He's a good guy." <laughs> but he was a genius. Ted, do you have any final stories that we should hear related to Al? Well, first of all, I got lucky, and I'm a fan, and it's a pleasure and privilege, 
And if all artists like Weird Al and the record companies would have less problems. He's just a wonderful, wonderful human being. He's got terrific relatives. When they had the uh, Walk of Fame, it was a very exciting day. That meant a lot. So they invited me to their little party. Well, it turns out one of his cousins almost played with the Dodgers. Triple A, right? The other thing is, Al's happily married. But what people didn't know, I would come to the studio passing through one night, you know, 9, 30, 10, not that you're in town, you eat, and then you got to go back to Beverly Hills, right? And every time I was over there, I saw another Miss Centerfold. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> this guy, they got married. This guy is a genius because, you know, when pretty girls go with somebody, that guy's a very special guy. And it wasn't because he was a star. He had a magnetism. It's unbelievable. And then he settled down. He's got the greatest, nicest wife. His daughter is still off the charts. And he's a happy guy, and he appreciates it. And, you know, we're all in the same neighborhood. And when I go to the supermarket, they can't believe it. Now comes in, and they say, oh, yeah, it's Ted, right? You know, whatever, whatever. whatever. <laughs> so, you, you know, I, I got lucky. That's all I can tell you. But the, the point is, he was one of a kind, and he could duplicate. That was our mantra. And, boy, could he duplicate, right? And how many years? It was 83? Yep. Now, what is it? What is it, 50? How many years is it now? So 83 <laughs> is... Uh, <laughs> 35 years, right? <laughs> right. And guess what? 10 years from now, it'll be a number one something, won't there? What's the phenomenon this year? 21 Nas X. You'll either nail it or wait for the next phenomenon, right? Because that's what he does. Right, that's that's the beauty of of the industry he's in is is he can always there's always going to be something popular for right. him to parody, right. <laughs> and no matter what the technology is, he's on top of it. So now he doesn't need an album, and now he can put out a single whenever he wants, right? And right. it's no accident that he's the only guy to debut number one, and was it the only second or the only one to have a comedy album be number one, right? Yeah, the first one in fifty years for. <laughs> for that to happen yeah. yes yeah yeah so you know there's, there's a reason for it because and, and they're so stupid the movie companies they give all these so-called hip people a shot and just say oh what do you want to do joe levine you know who that name is you guys are too young so he ran a company called avco embassy all right little chubby guy out of boston he was a genius took enough to film hercules and hustle so we got involved with Aunt Margaret, Joe Namath, who I want to make myself useful, sit in his office, hang, this and that. We became good, good friends. I said, Joe, what's your secret? He said, Dad, I'm an eighth grade dropout. He says, I'm not a genius like the rest of these guys. He said, so what you do is you find a winner and better until he gives you three losers. Who is the winner? Mike Nichols. All the other executives all forgot that. They turned down Clint Eastwood, million dollar baby. You already made him two million. So that's the thing. Al's a winner. Let them go. Anyway, I'm glad guys from New Jersey have the Weird Al podcast. <laughs> well, I'm actually not in New Jersey. If you're a horse racing guy, you may know Saratoga, New York. That's where I live. Yes. I know Saratoga very, very well. You know who founded the track? No. Well, you know, it's Belmont, right? August Belmont. Okay. And John Morrison. So now in history, they make them blue bloods, right? Well, Belmont was a German Jew that changed his name, became one of the great robber parents, okay? Like me. The other guy, Morrison, became a great Irish blue blood. He was a warmonger and a fighter and did time in jail and a gangster. He's in the founders of Blue Bloods in Saratoga. But uh, that's a gorgeous area up there. And I've been there many times, the Hall of Fame, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you guys ever travel, you come to Del Mar, you won't believe that place. The racing's not as great as Saratoga. 
but it's it's like an Australian beach town with a racetrack in your backyard. <laughs> Unbelievable. So, there's, who's from Jersey? Dave. Yeah, this is Dave. I'm from New Jersey. Okay, you're a Bloomfield yeah. guy, right? Uh, yeah, I'm in Bloomfield. Yep. Bloomfield High or Bloomfield Tech? Well, I went to. Uh, I actually grew up in Nutley. Oh, Nutley. Yeah, what yeah. a good town. They didn't make yeah. too much fun of the name, did they? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, that well. You, you know tell that. Weird Al you're from Nutley. Say, come on, fellas, stop putting me on. You don't have to do that. <laughs> anyway, I love talking to you guys, and I love what you're doing. I hope I didn't bore you today. No, these are great stories. Such a pleasure to talk to you, Ted. Thanks for uh, taking the time. Yeah, but thanks for uh, keeping up the good work, and uh, you picked the right guy. Weird Al is very <laughs> special, 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 and a good guy. Thanks so much to Tad Dodd for joining us on the podcast. Yes, thank you, Tad, and thank you to our friend Vicky DeVries for helping us connect with Tad. You know, Ethan, I actually met Tad back on the Straight Outta Linwood tour. I was out in California for the Orange County Fair shows in Costa Mesa, and Tad was in attendance along with, believe it or not, Fred Scotty of the famous Scotty Brothers family, of course, and he was sitting directly in front of me. Dave, didn't you and I also meet on the Straight Outta Linwood tour? Yeah, that's right. Well, what if you and Tad started the podcast and I was your guest this week? Yeah, it could happen. I could see that happen. <laughs> so how did you actually meet Tad? All right, so after the concert, Vicky introduced me to Tad. And t- let me tell you, Tad, he was such an extreme gentleman. And he actually hung around with us for a while and he was telling stories all about Al. And as you guys can tell from our interview, he loves to talk about Al to whoever will listen. <laughs> and he gets really excited and animated about things when he's talking about Al. He was such a blast to watch at the concert. He was, I'm not kidding, he was laughing and cheering more than everyone else that was around him. Wow. He is such a huge Weird Al fan, and he just loves everything about Al. That is so awesome. I thought it was really cool in the interview when he mentioned that Al sold catalog, meaning that you know his fans, once he came out with a new album and they became a fan, they wanted to hear all of his previous work. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, how many times have you met a Weird Al fan you know, who just came on on the latest album and the first thing they do after they're done listening to that album is they go and they try to find out what else Al has done. He's just that kind of artist that you just want to get his entire, as Tad put it, his entire catalog. He's definitely a catalog artist for sure. Totally. I remember that's the first thing I did. And Dave, did you hear, right as he mentioned Christmas at Ground Zero, a siren started going off in the background. <laughs> I know. <laughs> How appropriate. That was perfect timing. We couldn't have planned that better if we tried. <laughs> yeah, Frank did not edit that in. That was just literally the background noise coming from Tad's connection. <laughs> also during the interview, Tad mentioned it's still Billy Joel to me, and he sort of implied there was some sort of story that went along with that whole song and, and the parody. Do you know anything about that? I mean, the story that I've always heard is that Al just didn't ever ask Billy Joel permission because he knew that, you know, the song is a little mean-spirited if you listen to it so he never bothered to even go to billy joel and ask him any kind of permission you know you know and given like the tone of the lyrics and stuff i can understand that you know yeah i don't think al ever intended that song to be released as an official weird al song i think it was always intended just to be a concert only type yeah if you really really want to track it down i think it shows up on one of the dr demento basement tapes plus if you just go on youtube it's there obviously (laughs) (laughs) 
Yes, if you want the official, official release, the closest thing you can get is the Dr. Demento basement tape. Each week, we can bring you this podcast absolutely free, thanks to sponsors like Don Ferlazzo Allstate and Burrito Burrito, plus our amazing Patreon supporters like Jackson, Blair, and so many more. Patreon helps us pay the bills and ensures that we can continue to do what we love, and that is making fun, family-friendly, entertaining Weird Al podcasts for you. Please join us in thanking all of our supporters over on patreon.com slash 2000inch for making this podcast possible, and please consider joining the Patreon family for as little as $1 per month. And another way that you can support the podcast is by heading over to our merchandise shop and ordering official Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast swag. Head on over to shop.2000inch.com for all of our amazing items. Now, our listener, Denise, she sent me a text earlier today, and she just received her solid black logo woman's flowy tank top. That's a mouthful. (laughs) It is, but it's such a really nice piece. She sent me the picture and she ordered it in orange. And now that the gyms are starting to open, her plan is to wear this while she works out. What a great idea she had. You get to wear your official Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast t-shirt while you're listening to our latest episode while you're working out. It's a win-win for everybody. Get fit with Dave and Ethan. Thanks again to Tad Dowd and all of our listeners, subscribers, Patreon supporters and sponsors, and thanks to everyone who follows at 2000inch on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Be sure to join our Facebook group by heading on over to group.2000inch.com if you have not already. Do your part and tag fun, weird Al, or podcast-related posts on social media using hashtag 2000inch and hashtag gill and chill. Find us online at our website, weirdalpodcast.com or 2000inch.com. Make sure to share our posts, Tell your friends about the podcast, and we love it when you leave us voice messages via our 27-hour-a-day podcast hotline, 347-SPATULA. If you're listening to this podcast, you already know how to find us, but do me a favor, go on over to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, the podcast app of your choice, and press that subscribe button if you have not already. The reward for pressing that subscribe button is you get to hear the episodes the second they drop. They get downloaded automatically to your phone. It is awesome. Dave, I wasn't sure if Tad actually told us where he's from. Did you catch that? Ethan, he mentions being from New Jersey constantly in an interview. (laughs) How can you not have realized that? Hey, aren't you from New Jersey? Yes. How'd you know? That was Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast, episode 59-inch. What kind of chip you got in there? A Dorito?